Uh, Romans, uh, the start of Romans, it just wants us to understand how desperately we need uh, what God offers in the gospel. Uh, God offers uh, righteousness. Okay, a righteousness not that we um, provide for ourselves, but one that he gives as a gift. And in order for us to see um, how desperately we need that, uh, we need to know the predicament that we're in without it. And uh, so Romans uh, chapter 1 to 3 kind of shows us just how serious sin is, uh, how lost we are without Christ. And that's part of the, the, um, that's the context for this passage here. So let's read uh, from Romans chapter 2, verse 12 to um, 29. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law an embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonour God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. <clears throat> For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is circumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. <clears throat> okay, let's pray. Uh, we need God to help us understand. It is a complex passage, but uh, God's spirit will enable us to understand it. So let's ask him. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for your word. Uh, we know that uh, to delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night, that, that, that there is blessing in that. And we also know, Father, that, uh, that Jesus said that uh, if we look to him, we'll know the truth and the truth will set us free. So, Lord, we pray that uh, today that you would open our eyes to see the wonderful things here. 
And we pray that through this passage that you would lead us uh, by the hand all the way to Christ, that we would find uh, our hope in him alone. And we ask it uh, for his sake. Amen. Sometimes uh, things are not as they seem. Uh, For instance, when Jasmine uh, was much younger, uh, her family went to visit an old uncle uh, named Doug. And uh, Doug, he was a classic uh, bachelor, not very good at entertaining guests. And so they rock up, they enter the the kitchen, and he does his best efforts of um, putting on a cup of tea. Uh, They all sit down to enjoy the cup of tea. And just then Doug remembers that he has a packet of biscuits in the cupboard and they've been there for who knows how long, uh, maybe a decade. And so he he races to the cupboard to get out this packet of biscuits. As he reaches into the cupboard and grabs hold of the packet, it just crumbles in his hand. And it's quite a shock because the packet's still completely intact and yet there's no content in it. And so he's quite surprised. He begins looking very carefully at this packet, trying to work out what's gone wrong and as he looks at it suddenly his eye catches this tiny little hole down one end the hole is the size of a grain of sand see it turns out that a colony of those little black ants had made this little tiny hole and had removed every last biscuit one crumb at a time now that image of uh, something looking like the real thing but being completely empty on the inside, that's the point of this passage. Okay, something that looks like the real thing, but it's completely empty on the inside. That's the point of the passage. Uh, This passage is actually saying, it is possible to have a form of religion, even a form of religion that comes from the Bible, and yet there to be no reality underneath that form of religion. Uh, You can be religious and yet have uh, really been no different uh, to anyone else in the rest of the world. And, you know, this is a big issue in the church because there are always statistics being published about church-going people, statistics done by Christian organisations, and uh, every poll uh, over the last, uh, say, 10 or 15 years, they all come up with the same results that church-going people are just as likely to view pornography online as non-church-going people. That church people are just as likely to drink too much as non-church-going people. That church people are just as likely to borrow things from work, borrow uh, without returning them, Uh, just as willing to lie to get out of a difficult situation, just as likely to do something intentionally to get back at someone else, just as likely to gossip as those outside the church. Now, that's really disturbing to hear, but do you know what's even more disturbing? That you can have people doing those things and yet thinking everything's fine because I go to church, I read my Bible occasionally, and I've been baptised. I might even have been a, you know, a member of a church. See, you can have the outward packaging of being a Christian, but inside, is there any reality? Is there any reality in the heart? Uh, That's 
what this passage is all about. And what Paul does in this passage, he actually, he sets about peeling off these religious layers one at a time. And uh, he, he wants to expose what's underneath. He wants to see, is there anything actually under all of this packaging? And it's a painful process, but it's a necessary process because remember the context of Romans chapter 2. Judgment day is coming. And so it's much better to go through this painful process now of really seeing, is there some reality in my heart? Do that now when there's time to repent rather than leaving it to the last day and then finding out it's too late. And so in this passage, there are three uh, religious layers that Paul peels off. And when I read it, you would have noticed these layers are distinctly Jewish. And the reason for that is because when Paul wrote the letter, he, he was writing at this point to the Jewish people in the church at Rome. Okay, the church at Rome had Jews and Gentiles. Uh, at this point in the letter, he's, he's thinking about them particularly uh, because they had these layers and they, they thought you know, those things would uh, keep them safe in the judgment. And so Paul wants to peel it off and say, well, is there anything under this? Is there a reality? Or is it all just packaging? Now, these uh, layers here, these Jewish layers, they do have their Christian counterparts. So we will see very easily how it applies to us. So let's just have a look at these three layers. So the first one, uh, which is in verses 12 to 16, this is the layer of um, having God's law. Having God's law. And you'll see that there are two groups introduced in verse 12, uh, those who are without the law and then those who are under the law. And that is this distinction between um, Jew and Gentile. So Gentiles were those who didn't have the law. That is, they didn't have the Ten Commandments written down uh, like the Jewish people did. Uh, and, but the Jews did. And for them, see, that, that was actually a great privilege. To have the law was a wonderful privilege. I mean, you think about the Jewish people. Out of all, all the people in, in the earth, that's the nation that God you know, appeared to on Mount Sinai. You know, he gave the law to Moses on stone tablets. It's incredible to think about. And uh, that means they had the law and they valued that privilege very highly. Okay, they loved the law in the sense that they wanted to, to know it and, and learn it. So every, every Sabbath in that first century, uh, in all of those Roman cities, you would have literally millions of Jews gathering on the Sabbath, to hear the law read, uh, to study it, to even memorize it. And they would have little classes where they could uh, do all of that stuff. And so they saw it as a great privilege. However, the mistake that many made, the mistake that many made was that thinking that having the law and knowing the law and being an expert on the law, that that gave you a free pass on judgment day. Just having the law. Now, the implication, I think it should be pretty obvious for us today because in a similar way, we also have um, God's law in written form. You know, we've got the Bible. In fact, you could also argue that we have even more of it than the Jewish people because we've not just got the Old Testament, but we've got the New Testament as well. And that is a wonderful privilege. We should certainly um, be thankful for that and make the most of it. But there is always the danger of thinking that because you've got the Bible, and because you know the Bible, uh, that that 
that that alone will, will give you special treatment on Judgment Day. You know, look at all these things that I know. Well, look at verse 12 and 13. It says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And then verse 13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So what Paul is saying there is that on Judgment Day, uh, what God will be concerned about is not how well you know his word. Okay? He's not going to... He's not going to be checking out, let's see if you've memorized all the Ten Commandments. Let's see how well you know this stuff. What God will be looking at on Judgment Day is whether you kept the law. Okay, not just how well do you know it, but have you actually kept it? And Paul has been making this argument all the way through chapter 2. Judgment is not according to what we say. It's not according to what we think. It's according to how we have lived, whether we have obeyed God's law or not. And verse 13 says uh, that to be righteous before God or to be justified, in order to do that, you need to have kept all of the law perfectly. Okay, to be right with God, you need to have done everything written in the law. So having a Bible, uh, knowing God's law, it'll make no difference on Judgment Day if you haven't kept all of it. In fact, Paul goes on to argue that there is a sense in which just having the law, it gives you no advantage over those who don't have the law. And he, he explains that because even people who don't have the law written down, you know, even people who don't have access to a Bible or have never heard the Ten Commandments, they still do have a form of God's law. So have a look at verse 14. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law... By nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, what Paul is saying here to the Jews is, you know, think, think about all those Gentiles out there, never heard the Ten Commandments, but haven't you noticed how sometimes they actually do what the commandments require? You know, surely you can think of um, some Gentile people, he's saying, who um, respect their parents. Uh, you know, you can think of some one that, you know, when something goes wrong, they don't go out and murder people. Uh, they're generally kind to people. He says, you know, there's people who generally faithful to their spouses, don't steal from others and tell the truth. Okay, you don't have to be a a Jewish person to do that, or a Christian. Most people generally do those sort of things. In fact, you'll find that in most cultures, those things are valued. Uh, it seems like everyone understands those things. There's just this innate sense that they're the right thing to do. And the question is, where does that come from? Why is it that no matter what culture, even you know, deep in the Amazon jungle, that you'll find people who just have this innate sense that it's wrong to kill someone or it's wrong to steal stuff uh, or it's wrong to commit adultery. How, how, how come everyone seems to have that? And the answer that Paul gives is it's the law written on their hearts. And that's one of the implications of being created in God's image. 
Okay, then when God created humanity, he created them in his image, which means that everyone reflects him in some way. Now, that image has been defaced by sin so that we no longer reflect God as well as uh, we were designed to. Uh, it's kind of like a, you know, a broken mirror. If you get a broken mirror, you can still kind of see a bit of a reflection in there, but it's all distorted. Uh, that's what's happened to the image of God in humanity. And, uh, and yet even still, there's still that sense of knowing what is right and wrong. So in one sense, everyone has the law. Uh, moreover, Paul talks about a conscience. Uh, and everyone knows what that's like. You know, you do something that's wrong and you feel bad about it. That's a conscience speaking. And again, it's not flawless. The conscience can be, um, you know, it's fallen. It can, you can suppress the truth. Uh, but the whole point of all of this is just saying that on Judgment Day, no one's going to stand up and say, I didn't know what I was meant to be doing. Okay, everyone will know because everyone knows God's law whether that's in written form or in that innate sense on the heart. And so Paul's just making the case, everyone's assessed by the same standard. Okay, God's law is the standard. And because God is completely fair, he will take into account how much of the law people had. But what does that mean for those who have his written law and yet have disobeyed it? What does it mean? It means you're not in an advantage, you're at a disadvantage. It means the penalty will be greater. So do you see how Paul's done this? The Jews were thinking, we've got the law, we're fine. But if you haven't kept it, no, no, you're actually in a worse position than you can imagine. The penalty will be greater for breaking it. So that's the first thing. Yikes, what if you've sinned? What if you've broken the law? Okay, what about the next layer? Heritage. Uh, that's the, what's the, so verses 17 to 24, this is dealing with heritage. Now, what's a heritage? A heritage is uh, just think in terms of the things you grow up with, uh, the group you're a part of, the history that you've had. That's your heritage. And Paul talks about the Jewish heritage in verses 17 to uh, 24. And he begins by saying, but if you call yourself a Jew... If you call yourself a Jew. Now, you've got to understand that back then, to call yourself a Jew, that was a title of wonderful privilege and honour. Because remember, out of all the nations of the world, God had chosen this people and made them his own. He'd entered into a covenant with them. And that brought so many benefits to their lives. Uh, you can see some of the benefits listed here in verses 17 to 20. You know, they had the law, they could boast in God, that they knew God. Uh, they, uh, they knew God's will, and as a result, he says that they could be a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, okay? because in the law they have the knowledge of the truth. Again, a great privilege. Okay? They had this, this rich, Bible-saturated heritage. But what Paul is identifying here, there's a problem though, because although these people they had this wonderful heritage, the problem was they put their trust in it, okay? As if, as if being outwardly attached to this rich heritage guaranteed that they would be exempt from judgment. 
And how can you tell that it was just an outward attachment? How could you tell? Because of what Paul goes on to say. Look at verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the Lord, dishonor God by breaking the law. As it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So here Paul is talking about um, hypocrisy, saying one thing but doing another, not practicing what you preach, that's hypocrisy. And we're not sure if Paul is talking about literal acts. You know, when he talks about stealing, is he, you know, is he saying they're actually going out stealing stuff? Um, were, they, were they actually sleeping around? Were they going into pagan temples and stealing relics and then taking the gold off it and selling it? Maybe. That's certainly possible. Um, it's more likely, though, Paul is talking about how they've broken the true intent of the law. Okay, what's the true intent of not stealing? It's actually sharing. Uh, what's the true intent of not committing adultery? Okay, it's you don't lust. And in fact, you're actually faithful in your relationships. Uh, they've broken those things. And uh, But either way, what the point he's making is that a religious heritage, uh, it's no good to you if it's just an outer shell masking a life of secret sin. Okay, it doesn't matter what your heritage is, if it's just masking secret sin, it's going to be no good on Judgment Day. And uh, again, heritage, it's not the problem. Okay, having a good heritage not, is not the problem. The problem is when it's just a mask. And in, in fact, if it is a mask for secret sin, then it puts you at a disadvantage. It makes you more culpable on Judgment Day. Now, what's the implication for us here? Again, I think it's pretty easy to see. Uh, that, you know, like the first century Jew, none of us will be able to hide behind a heritage, no matter how good that heritage is, we won't be able to hide behind it and think that's what will shield us from judgment. So what that means is, you know, lots of people seem to have this idea that because I belong to a so-called Christian country, that therefore I have a free pass into heaven when I die. That's not so. Or uh, here's one, maybe a bit closer to home. Uh, a lot of us here grew up in a, a good Christian home. You know, you might have had parents who loved God, parents who took you to every church meeting, put you in Sunday school, youth group, all these things. Uh, parents who, who led family worship every night. You basically grew up in the Bible, which is wonderful heritage. But the question is, what value will that be to you what value will your upbringing be if Judgment Day exposes that your heart is full of these things that dishonour God? And it's the same with church membership or having a leadership role in the church or belonging to a mission organisation. If underneath all that packaging is a life of blatant hypocrisy, then none of these things will actually be of any advantage to you on that day when God judges the secrets of men's thoughts. Even our theological, our theological tradition gives us no advantage. Okay, Reformed theology is wonderful. Now, it's a Bible-rich heritage. But it's of no use 
if you hold on to it like a badge of righteousness. Now, don't misunderstand the point here. All of these things are great. They're wonderful things. Okay, Having a Bible-saturated heritage, a wonderful thing, but what this passage is saying is don't rely on it. Don't put your trust in it. Don't think that that's what's going to save you on Judgment Day. Okay, God's judgment, when we stand before him, he's not going to judge what our upbringing was, you know, what group we belonged to, what memberships we had, what positions we had in life, or even our theological labels. That's all just the packaging. What he wants to know is, is there any content inside? Okay, is there a heart that loves him? Is there a heart that does his will? And that's what Judgment Day will reveal. See, having God's law, no advantage if you've broken it. Having a good Christian heritage, no advantage if it's just a mask for a life of no obedience. Well, that brings us to the third layer then. The third layer in verses 25 to 29, and that is circumcision. Now, circumcision, uh, it's probably not the topic you think you'd, you know, go and hang out with a bunch of people and think about. It's a very strange topic, but you've just got to remember, Paul is writing to Jewish people, and for them, circumcision was everything, okay? Because circumcision was their identity marker. It's the marker that God gave to the Israelites, beginning with Abraham, and that marked them out as his people, okay? They were separated from the rest of the world because they had this sign, this sign uh, that showed that they were in a covenant relationship with God. And so to the Jewish person who had been circumcised, they would have thought that surely they're right on Judgment Day because they have this marker that they belong to God. Surely everything's okay. But look at what Paul does. He gets back to the heart again. Verse 25, circumcision is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. He goes on to explain that the whole point of circumcision was that it was an outward sign that was supposed to point to an inward reality. And what's the inward reality? A heart set apart for God. And so if you have someone who is living in disobedience to God and someone who clearly does not have a heart for God, even if they're circumcised, that means nothing. Okay, circumcision, it's meaningless if there's no inner reality. And that's why Paul argues in the opposite way uh, in verses 26 and 27. He says, you know, you can imagine a, a Gentile um, doesn't have the outward mark, but he has the inward reality. And he's the one that God considers, did you notice, a true Jew? Okay, an inward Jew? In other words, a true member of God's people? Okay, well, what's this saying to us? <laughs> you don't have to get circumcised, so there's, there's one good implication. But uh, what it is saying to us, there is a very obvious parallel to um, baptism because baptism functions in exactly the same way. Baptism is an outward sign that points to an inward reality of a new heart. And uh, you can actually see how this passage applies to us if we just take the word Jew and swap that for Christian and take the word circumcision and swap it for baptism. 
then we can see how it applies. So you have a look at uh, verse 28 and 29. Uh, For no one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly, nor is baptism uh, outward and physical, but a Christian is one inwardly, and baptism is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. You see that? Having an external sign, no advantage if there's no inner reality. And see, I'm, I'm pretty sure that none of us here want to get to that final day and stand before the judge of the universe and on that day realising then that all that we were was an outward Christian. Okay, none of us want to get to that day and find that that's to be the case. None of us want to find out when it's too late that we were trusting in the externals, that we had no inner reality, no changed heart. And look, having a Bible, belonging to a church, being baptised, all wonderful things. Nothing wrong with them, but on their own, they cannot save you, and on their own, they cannot change your heart. So what hope is there for us then? Because after all, we've all sinned, we've all disobeyed God's law. What hope is there for us? The answer is the gospel. That's what this passage is driving at. This, this section of Romans is driving at, it's showing us we can't rest on anything else other than what is given in the gospel. And uh, you see that even in this passage. There is a little preview of the gospel in verse 29. Did you notice it? Notice how Paul says that the, uh, the, the inward circumcision, the, the changed heart, that's something that is done by the Spirit, not by the letter. Okay? The law can't change your heart, but the Spirit uh, can. And, and that, that's a little preview of the gospel. It's showing us that the answer is found in God. The answer is not found in ourselves. Don't hear all this and think, man, I've got to try harder then. Don't hear this and think, it's up to me to change my heart. No, no, hear this and realise God can do it. He's your only hope. He's the only one who can take your dead heart and make it alive. And in the way he does that is by his spirit. Because when the spirit works in someone's heart, what the spirit does, he applies the son's work to you. Okay, the Spirit, his job is to take the believer and unite the believer to Christ so that everything that Jesus has done becomes yours. You know, Jesus' death for sin. Jesus died for sinners. That death, when the Spirit unites you to Christ, that becomes yours. The perfect life Jesus lived where he obeyed the law perfectly, that becomes yours in Christ. And so now when the Father looks at you as, as a believer, as someone united to Christ, do you know what he sees? He doesn't look at you as someone to be condemned. He looks at you as someone to praise. And that's what this last sentence in verse 29 is getting at. See, his praise is not from man but from God. See, that's the only hope of not being condemned on Judgment Day. That's the only hope of a of an inner transformed life now. It's this hope that's found in God alone and it's made known to us in the gospel of Jesus. Now, I just want to end with um, this thought. You know the bloke who um, God inspired to write all this down, the Apostle Paul? Do you know he knew what he was talking about? And he knew, obviously, because God inspired him, but 
he actually knew from personal experience what this was like. Because there was a time in his life when he was the one who he's describing here. Now, Paul was the one who trusted in the law, who trusted in his heritage and trusted in his circumcision, thinking that those were the things that made him right with God. For years, he thought like that. And he tells us about that in um, Philippians. Uh, here he gives, like, it's like his resume. You know, he's building this resume. To, one day he's going to say to God, you know, look at how great I am. God, surely I can get into heaven. And here he was his old resume. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Okay, he thought he had achieved everything. But then one day, Paul met Jesus. And in the brilliance of that light, seeing Jesus, seeing the righteousness of Christ, when, when he finally met Jesus, that turned Paul's world completely upside down, or should I say it turned him completely inside out. And he tells us what happened as a result. He says, uh, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count as everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Okay, that's what you need. That's what you all need. We're all going to stand before the judge. We're all going to have our lives examined to see, did we obey the law? Not one of us have. Okay, not one of us are qualified. But here we have God saying, there is righteousness for you. The righteousness of Christ. If you've got that, you are not condemned. You are set free. See, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So take hold of Jesus. Don't depend on anything else but Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this uh, very uncomfortable passage. Uh, it always is uncomfortable having the uh, things that we uh, depend on uh, being ripped away and then being exposed for what our hearts are really like. Um, but Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you that it is uh, a way of us being able to see more clearly the depravity of our own hearts and seeing that, that there's nothing that we can do or nothing that we can uh, rely on in and of ourselves that can save us. But we thank you that there is one and one alone who is the, the source of life and the source of a new heart. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his perfect obedience because we know that that's our only hope, not our obedience but his. And we thank you for his death because all of these things that we've done against you we know that they all deserve punishment, but we praise you that Christ was punished in our place. And Lord, we thank you for this uh, assurance that uh, if we're in Christ, that, we will, that we're, we're not condemned now. And even on that day, 
uh, that we will be uh, not condemned, but rather praised, uh, praised because of the righteousness of Christ. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.